just said don't offer the invitation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good evening. Can you hear me? That's good. I do not like it when I get done speaking and I get out in the foyer and somebody says, well, I'm sure it was a great lesson, but we didn't hear any of it. So it's kind of pointless. Troy leaned over and said, don't give an invitation. Uh, at the end of this lesson, when I was in preaching school, we had a whole class about how that the history of us giving invitation at the end of sermons came about. I don't know if you know this, but most Christians throughout time have not said in a in a room and listen to a preacher give a sermon and then give an invitation at the end of it. We've only done that for about the last 300 years in Christianity. And I'm not going to go into all the details. But I decided, well, if that was the case, well, I was going to be like uh, like Christians long ago. So I was invited to this little congregation and I got up and I gave a sermon about being an example to the brethren on 1 Timothy 4.12. And when I got to the end of it, I just said, thank you very much and sat down. So the last song was finally being... Uh, was being sung, and I decided, well, I better get up and walk to the back of the auditorium. And I mean, I got back to the back of that auditorium, and the, the preacher who was there, uh, he came down the other side of the auditorium, almost at a run, and met me in the back uh, in the foyer, and informed me immediately that if I was going to be a preacher of any worth, that I would give an invitation at the end of every sermon that I ever give. So I never forgot that. I thought, boy, he, he treated me like I had just gotten up and spoken the worst false doctrine and said the most heinous things that you, you've ever heard. So anyway, it's funny how we get in those traditions. That's a sermon for another time. Uh, Eddie sent me a letter, which I intend to mostly ignore tonight, primarily because he's not here and he can't stop me. Uh, and the worst that can happen is you could not ask me back, see. That's what that's the danger you run when you ask preachers to come in, you know. We, we just think, well, they can't fire us. So you know, maybe I say things I wouldn't normally say. The letter said to talk about Jesus and walking in his steps. And I got to thinking about something, and that is, well, who is he exactly? And we usually think about things like, well, he's my Savior, or he's my Lord, or he's the one upon whom the church is founded. Then I got to thinking about, well, is there a verse, perhaps in the Bible, that describes this one whose steps we are to follow uh, that we don't usually think about when we think about Jesus that would really sum up who he is? And if you'll turn your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 1, you're going to find a great summation of who Jesus is. And as I said, these are some characteristics that he has uh, that we don't always think about. And I think they're things that we need to be reminded of if we're going to follow him, if we're going to imitate him, if we're going to uh, give our life to him and follow him into eternity. I want to start in verse 4, but the primary outline for the entire class tonight will be verses 5 and verses 6. So you may just want to hang out right there in your, in your Bible. I'll look at some other passages. But here, starting in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now listen to the description of Jesus Christ here. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, released us from our sins by his blood, and who has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever. Amen. That's quite a description of Jesus, and there's a lot to be fleshed out there. And not everything about Jesus is encompassed in that passage, but I do want to look at each of the things 
uh, that are said about him here, if he's going to be the one that we're going to follow, we need to understand these things. Number one, John says that he is the faithful witness. Uh, that's in, primarily in regard to God and to uh, the revelation. But it tells us something uh, that people want to know. Someone says, well, we, we can't know anything about Jesus uh, when he was a boy. I mean, we see him when he when he's born and we understand the virgin birth. And the next thing we know, he's he's in the temple at the age of 12 and he's impressing all the uh, the doctors of theology who were supposed to know how the Torah, the law of Moses uh, in, in and out. And he's giving them interpretations of those passages and just impressing them to, to know it. And then we meet him. At the age of 30, after John the Baptist has come on the scene and his ministry begins, and so we can't really know anything about Jesus when he was a young boy. We can't know anything about him when he was a teenager. But I'm here to tell you that based on John's description of him right here, we can know an awful lot. What can we know? We can know that he was faithful to God. We can know that he was a child who helps his parents. We can know he was one uh, who was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted when we're young. With all the sexual immorality, with all of the temptations uh, to lie, to cheat, to steal, uh, to commit fornication. He did not do uh, those things. Why? Because he was a faithful witness to God. So he witnessed to the things of God. He was faithful to God. John 1 and 18 says that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. Jesus has revealed God the Father to us. And the only way you're ever going to see the Father is to look at Jesus. If we're ever going to understand God, we have to look at Jesus. He is the manifestation. He is the theophany that we have been given uh, to be able to know what God wants, to understand how we are to live and what we are to do. So Jesus is the one that reveals God the Father to us. Let me do a little exercise for just a moment. Uh, close your eyes for just a second, just a moment. I want you to picture an apple. Picture a cow. Now picture God. That's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, what are you going to look at? What are you going to... Uh, well, since I've been a little kid, uh, God looks like Dr. Phil. I don't know where I picked this up, but I'm talking from the time I was like four or five years old. Uh, God is this really tall, really large, completely bald, like, kind of like Telly Savalas used to be. You know, just chrome dome, like I'm going to be, not uh, the t too uh, distant future. Uh, just this really tall, bald man with a big mustache and a white robe. And now, I guess as a kid somewhere, I picked up, I saw somebody, and somebody talked about God, and I put those two things together. Clearly, that picture is completely wrong. But it's what's in my head. We all have a picture of God. How am I going to know what God is really like? How am I going to build a picture of a spiritual being, an invisible God? Moses said, I want to see you. And God said, well, you can't even look upon me. Isaiah was brought before the throne of God. And he was given an opportunity to see him, but he could only see the train of his garment, as Isaiah records that instance in Isaiah 6. So how am I going to make a picture of it? My concept of God is only going to be right if that concept comes from Scripture. And the only way I can get to that concept, if it's revealed by the faithful witness, that is Jesus Christ. So one day in John 14 and 8, Jesus was preparing to go back 
uh, to heaven. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus wanted to just get down on, on his knees and put his hands over his head and scream because for all this time he'd been with them, that's what he's been doing. He says, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, John 14 and 9. So whatever Jesus did is what the Father does. Whatever Jesus loved is what the Father loves. So when I walk in the footsteps of Jesus, what does that mean? I'm learning to love the things that God loves. I'm learning to hate the things uh, that God hates. I am becoming like God, not in a literal sense, but I am taking on uh, his, his character. And 1 John 3 and 2 becomes true, one of the most fascinating scriptures to me in the entire New Testament that says that we do not know yet what we will be, but when, when he appears again, we know that we will be like him. That's a tremendous thought. Why? Because we're paying attention to the faithful witness of Jesus Christ. The fact that he is faithfully witnessing to who God is and that we are taking that witness and we're making it our own. So whatever Jesus expects is what the Father expects. And when Jesus was with the woman at the well in John 4, uh, he told her that God uh, was spirit. So we get a description of God as to what he says and what he expects and to what he teaches and what he thinks and how he acts. And how he reacts and all of that comes through Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus was on the mountain with the disciples and God revealed Jesus as his only witness. He said, we've come to a place in the world, in, a t in time, when I've had lots of witnesses in the past. In past times, God has spoken to the fathers, through the prophets, in diverse manners and various ways. But in these last days, the Hebrew writer says... That's right. There is probably nothing more significant and profound that you can come to understand than the faithful witness of Jesus Christ for you. This is it, God is saying. I am speaking through my son, the one who is full of grace and truth that I've sent. I gave you Moses, but Moses was a servant in the house, Hebrews 3. This, this one is the builder of the house. And so we come to Matthew 17, and Jesus is there with uh, with Peter uh, and John, and this incredible picture arises of Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is, tra is transcended. He, his deity uh, comes through, and as Peter often was, he wasn't really sure what to do, so he, uh, he put his mouth in gear before he put his brain in gear, and he was probably just really trying to say something that was profound. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you needed to start talking and the best thing you could do was just be quiet? Well, that's where Peter is, and now a motor mouth is running. And so he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then there's some kind of some comedy here, if, if you may permit me to say that. Some things in Scripture are a little funny. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then it says, Listen to him. And that's where the emphasis was. Moses was a giver of the law. I took him up on the mountain. And he was a great man. I picked him for a reason. I took him down to Egypt, and we brought all those people out of the uh, the bondage of slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament. That's the way God refers to himself constantly to Israel, that I am the one who freed you from the bondage of Egypt. And Moses was with him for 40 years in the wilderness, and finally I took him up to heaven. Elijah is the great prophet who went up 
on the mountain and defeated the prophets of, of Baal and fire came down from heaven. And you, if you don't know that story, then you need to go and read it. But neither one of them are even significant in comparison, in comparison to my son, who is the faithful witness to what I want from the world and what I want from each and every one of you. So we need to listen to Jesus. If I'm going to walk in his footsteps, then I have to take the attitude that Jesus had. The one thing that he always did was he listened to the Father. He listened to God and whatever God wanted, and he looked to what God had said in every circumstance of life. When he was tempted in Matthew 4, it's just recorded by the devil each time, he said, it is written. What was he saying? I'm listening to God. I'm not listening to Satan. You can stand right in front of me, Satan, but I have nothing, there's nothing I want to hear from you because God has already spoken, and that's who I listen to. So if I'm going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, and that's my attitude, I'm going to listen to him. There's lots of voices that speak in this world to us. There's the voice of, of the moment. There is the, uh, the culture of corruption that is around us. Uh, there is that voice of temptation, as some people have over the years personified it. There is the the angel that's good on one shoulder and the angel that isn't on the other. But at the end of the day, I have to learn to move through all of that and just look at Jesus and kneel at the foot of the cross and listen to what he has to say. In 1 Peter 1 and 10, Peter says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what time, the person or the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So there's the witness of Jesus even before the incarnation uh, to the world. Now, I don't understand that, but it does tell us uh, that he's eternal. Jesus was before the incarnation. He was speaking through the prophets. And those prophets were wondering what they were saying. They wanted to know when these things were going to happen and where. And they were not speaking of themselves. They were speaking of the power of Jesus as the living word of God and the logos uh, that is mentioned in John chapter 1. So Jesus is the truth of God. He is the revelation of God. And practically speaking, this is why the Bible is important. Because I'm not going to meet the faithful witness that is Jesus Christ in a dream. He's not going to speak to me audibly. Those days are long gone. I'm not going to have an experience uh, that's going to bring me to understand uh, that Jesus is who he said he is and what God wants me to do. Uh, what he has done is he has taken that which he has witnessed and which we need to witness to, and he has put it down in the pages of Scripture. And that's why the Bible is important, because without it, we'll never know him. Uh, we'll never know Jesus, and we'll never know the Father. You ever stop to think about what you wouldn't know if you didn't have a Bible? We take an awful lot for granted. Uh, the world does. There's so many things that we wouldn't understand. We wouldn't understand love. We wouldn't understand grace, mercy, kindness. Uh, there's radical things that Jesus brought into the world. I mean, radical. Have you ever stopped to consider just how radical the Sermon on the Mount is? Even, even in, in the days when Jesus spoke it, when he said, everybody loves those who love them. I want you to go and love your enemies. And that's a radical idea. Nobody thought like that, and most people don't think like it now. But think about how it changes. Uh, everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that, get, that just rolls off the tongue, right? Think about what that means. Don't just say those words. I mean, contemplate what that means. I'm not going to do anything to you uh, that I don't want you to do to me. That changes the whole world. 
Think about the power of just one line that Jesus spoke. And what does that tell me? It tells me that he is revealing uh, to me the very pure and perfect mind of the Father. He's witnessing to that, and so must I. Number two, he is the firstborn of the dead. Now this is not so much in relation to God as it is in relation to his disciples, to us. And this is really good news uh, for you and, and for me. And it was really good news for those uh, in the Revelation who were facing some tremendous persecution. So he is the firstborn of the dead. In the day that this was written, a lot of our brethren were about to die. You know, around the world today, a lot of those who are Christians, a lot of those who are New Testament Christians who are worshiping, are worshiping in secret. They're worshiping quietly in basements uh, and in places uh, that are away from the cities, in fields uh, and in seclusion for fear of the governments that they live under uh, and the other religious groups around them and the possibility of losing their life. That's where those in the Revelation were. A persecution was about to become hot and heavy on the church and a lot of these people were about to die. The Roman gladiators would go into uh, the Colosseum and they would say, oh, we salute, salute, you, salute you, Caesar, those of us who are about to die. Well, uh, what Jesus needed them to understand of these early Christians, uh, that what they needed to do uh, was to say that we who are about to die, Jesus, we claim you. Revelation 2 and 10 is a verse that gets quoted often. I quote it often. It's one of those really preachable verses. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. And we read that. And given the ease with which we have grown up in Western society and in the, uh, the wealthiest culture that has ever been in all the existence of human history, we read that and we say, well, that means after I've lived 70 or 80, 90, maybe 100 years and I've been faithful to God, then um, from there, God's going to translate me into heaven. And that's absolutely true. But that's not what it means in the context of the book of Revelation. What Jesus is saying in that letter to that church is when you decide to become a Christian, it's going to be a very short time between your decision to take me on as your savior and your death. And secular history records this, that it was usually a very short time between the time someone became a baptized, immersed member of the church and the martyr's death. Sometime only days, weeks, some made it months, and some did make it years. Uh, so it's incredible to think about the way the word of God spread uh, in all of that. But when Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life, he means you're going to get out of the baptistry and you're going to have my mark on you. And because of that, you're going to die. And you're going to die soon. That's pretty powerful uh, to think about. So because of death here, what John is saying when he talks about Jesus is that it is not the end. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's been born out of death. That's a tremendous thing to think about. Of course, we're looking at the resurrection. And in Revelation 1 and 17, Jesus said, do not be afraid. I like that a lot. Are you afraid? We have lots of fears, don't we? What's one of the things that Jesus is constantly saying to us in Scripture? What's the first thing he says to his disciples when he appears to them after the resurrection? Peace be with you. Why? Because there wasn't any peace. There was lots of fear. They were hiding and they were afraid. And so have most Christians throughout time been afraid. All of us have fears 
So I look at Jesus and I'm very thankful when he says, do not be afraid. But notice I'm very thankful for why he says not to be afraid here. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. So he's not going to die again. He is stating the eternal nature of his current state. And then he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. You ever been in a prison? You ever gone in a prison and somebody shut the door behind you? That's a clank you will not forget. And there's one thing you want is you want to know that somebody with you has the keys. Why? Because you want out of what you're in. Nobody wants to be in prison. And if you're visiting, you want to walk with the person who has the keys. Well, that's what Jesus is telling us. Uh, that when we become a Christian, we're walking with the man, with the one who has the keys to death. So when I die and I die in Christ, what does he do? He unlocks the door. And he says, come on in. Come on in to me. Come out of death. Come out of that. You're not held by it. See, death frightens me a great deal, and it frightens you. And in 1 John chapter 4, there's a statement that I wish I could achieve in which John says that perfect love casts out all fear, but I'm, I'm not one that loves perfectly because i got lots of fears. And to be completely honest with you, death is one of them. I think about it a little every day. Maybe not everybody's that way, but I don't like the idea of dying. It scares me. I'm afraid of things about how I may die. That's probably uh, primarily one of the things I think about. Uh, in relation to death, but we think about death. See, there's a very big difference between me and Jesus here. You see, I have no control over death. I can live with a nurse. I can exercise every day. Uh, I can eat like the doctor tells me I'm supposed to, and I can leave the Twinkies and the blizzards from Dairy Queen alone. And death is coming. And it's closer in this moment than it was when we, when we met, uh, when we came here tonight to be together. And the clock is just ticking. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. It is appointed once for all men to die, the Hebrew writer says, and then is the judgment. There are certain meetings you cannot avoid. And this is one of them. And so here's a huge difference between me and the one I follow. Jesus has death on a leash like I would have it on a puppy. And death does what he wants it to. Death means nothing to him. So when I walk with the one who has the keys, uh, then I'm with the one who has the power over death. He has the power to give life. And so when I am in Christ, when I have experienced that resurrection, Romans chapter 6, uh, then what Jesus has done is he's laid the rose of immortality on my grave. And he's saying, come uh, and be with me. I'm the firstborn of the dead. I'm the first one to do it. Now I want you to follow me. And I've laid all the groundwork through my blood and through the cross and through showing my power uh, on, uh, through the resurrection, Romans 1 and 4. So we don't have to live in that fear. Uh, we're still going to be afraid of death. Uh, but it certainly, it, it ought to calm us a great deal. Uh, think about, for example, Hebrews 2 and 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. Listen to this for a minute. He himself, that is Christ, likewise also partook of the same. So what are we talking about here? We're saying that he came to earth. We understand this. He left heaven, Philippians chapter 2. He took on the form of a bondservant and he gave up the prerogatives of deity to live on this dying earth. That through death he might render powerless 
him who had the power of death. Through sin, in ways that I don't really understand, Satan had a certain power that he was given or granted or he could exercise. That is the devil. Why did he do all of this? Why did Jesus do this? That he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. He's saying up until the time that Jesus came, uh, there was a fear in the world because nobody really understood the solution that God had to this. The Jews knew something was coming. Uh, the Gentile world uh, probably either didn't care or, or didn't know to care. That's a whole other study. But the reality is, is that once Jesus came, our fear should be a leap. See, we, we can look back. We live in the age of the church. Jesus said of John the Baptist that of those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist, but he who is in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. That's always been one of those statements in the New Testament that's baffled me, and I think what Jesus means there is we're greater in the sense that we know more. We have a greater position. We've been honored more because we're getting to see so much of the plan of God that other people didn't get to see, and that's back to what Peter says when he talks about the prophets who long to look into the things that the Spirit of Christ uh, was revealing. So I don't need to live in fear because I see the solution. Jesus on the cross, Jesus resurrected, is what takes the sting, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, out of death. So I don't have to meet death in fear. I can meet death as a friend because we're not done yet. As a matter of fact, death for me is the birth into my real life. See, that's a tremendous thing to think about. That's what happened. When Jesus died, he met his real life, his eternal life, his perfect life. So you're not going to end. You're going to be transformed. You're going to be changed. You're going to be made. I love this word because it just boggles the mind. You're going to be immortal. Think about that. What does it mean to be immortal? I like to let my mind kind of run crazy. We watch these movies with Marvel comic, comic characters, you know, uh, Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk and uh, all, all the rest of them. Think about all the things they can do. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do, but I'd like to think I can do some of the things that, you know, that they do. Uh, that I, I'm, I'm not going to be hindered uh, in, the, in the ways that I, that I am hindered now. So Jesus is offering me immortality, and I'm delivered from a lifetime of bondage of fear, of dying and from death itself in all of eternity. So that's a tremendous thing. Number three, he is said to be, and this is just, this really shifts gears here, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who's in charge of what goes on in this world? I'd like to think I am. Don't we all? Don't we really like to think that we're in charge of our own lives. Don't we spend so much of our lives trying to make our lives the way we want our lives, getting the job we want and the house we want and the cars we want and the kids to do what we want? Some of you are smiling because that's what you're doing right now, right? How much of our lives do we spend doing this? Living in the illusion that we have all of this control. Someone... Asked me this question. Actually, I'm speaking on a lectureship next week, and this is the question they've asked me to talk about. And, and that is, what is the purpose of suffering? I'm going to use First Peter to do that. And one of the reasons that God brings about suffering in our lives is to get us to understand that we're not. You know, you can be doing all of that. You can be working all of those hours. 
Every week you can be, I, I watch people, uh, they'll come in my office and they'll say, we want to be more involved in the church. I'm like, okay, well, uh, d- do you want to teach a Bible class? Would you like to be involved in our seniors ministry? Would you like to be involved with the kids? Would you like to be involved in taking care of the, of the building? Or maybe you can help plan VBS and then they start going through their schedule. Well, you know, I'm only working 85 hours a week. And my husband, uh, you know, he, he's only working 85 hours a week because we've got to, We've got to pay for the addition onto the, the, the house, and we've got to pay for the new jet ski. And we, uh, we just bought a pickup, and then we've got the crushing credit card debt uh, that's coming down on us. But we're in control. We've got it. Right up to when one of them goes to the doctor and finds out they have terminal cancer. Guess what? I'm not in control. I'm in peril every day of my life, every moment. Is that scary? It's true. I mean, I may not wake up in the morning. I mean, that's reality. And perhaps it is why we, we live so often in, a, uh, in fantasies. But here's what I know, is that my Savior and Lord and Master is in control. And he has promised me that no matter what happens in this world, if I'm faithful to him, I will be eternally rewarded. Because when I look at the Middle East and I don't understand what's going on there and I never will, or when I look at what happens politically in this world, and I don't understand any of that, or I like to say that I do. I'm, I grew up in a house full of politics. My, uh, my father was involved in state and even federal politics for much of my life and still is in many ways. And I've even campaigned for some people uh, because of that. But one thing that, that it taught me is that you and I really don't know what's happening uh, in, in, in the world and the things that we're told are often far from the truth. But I know this, I can trust Jesus. And he's the only one I can trust. He is the faithful witness. So why should I walk in his steps? Because I'll lie to you. And you'll lie to me. And every other human being on this in this world will lie to you. Paul says in the book of Romans, let every man be, be found a liar, and only God be found true. So when I learn something about Jesus, I want to hold on to it. When he says something to me, I want to hold on to it. And people in this world say that they've got control of things. Uh, the President of the United States goes on television and says, we've got the situation under control in North Korea. Do I believe him? No, I don't. He's telling me what I want to hear. He's, he's soothing my nerves about a crazy dictator that may shoot a, a nuclear missile up in the air. He's being what politicians are. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 was like this. He looked out at his whole kingdom and he said, look at what I've built. He says, look at this incredible place that I've made. Look at all these people that are my subjects. Look at all this gold that I have amassed. And Daniel tells him, "Uh, you've had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar. That dream was of a big tree, wasn't it? And all the the birds of the earth came and they nested in, in the the leaves and the animals of the world came underneath that, that tree. And then all of a sudden that tree was cut down and there was just a stump. Guess what, Nebuchadnezzar? That tree is you. And the reason you're going to be cut down is so that you understand that God most high rules in the kingdoms of the world. That's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar spent a time acting like an animal and eating grass. And then he sent Senses in his sanity were restored to him. And Daniel 4 and 37 says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. 
For all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So God is in control of things. And it doesn't look that way to me, and it didn't look that way to these early Christians. I mean, imagine you've just become a follower of Jesus, and your wife's just become a follower of Jesus, and you're going home, and on the way home, a Roman soldier grabs your wife and pulls her down in an alley and chops her to pieces with a sword. Does that look like God is in control? And then three days later, you find yourself in prison and your children taken away from you because you won't say Caesar is Lord and burn a little bit of incense in a temple to a false god. Doesn't look like God's in control a lot of times, does it? So when we look at the book of Revelation in Revelation 6 and 9, we see this picture of all of these souls, these people who have been martyred for the sake of Christ, and they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Justice delayed is not justice denied. See, just because God hadn't got around to doing it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. That's what he's saying. And he tells them essentially take a white robe and wait. Sit down and wait. I've got a plan. So we see all kinds of things in this world and we say, well, Jesus isn't in control of this. God's not in control of this world. Look at the madness that we see. And yet he is. And we don't know the plan. So God lets a lot of things go that we wouldn't let go because, well, he's God, right? And he knows far more than we do. And he can see far more than we can. So Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he cancels any law or decree uh, that man would make ultimately against his will. And we're coming to an end here. Let me just note a couple of other things that really matter in this passage. It says that he loves us. He's the one who loves us. You ever just sit down and thought about the fact that God loves you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, die, be condemned, but instead would receive eternal life. That's a tremendous thought. Three words, maybe the greatest three words that can be uttered on human lips. God loves me. You ever think about who God is, really? I mean, a lot of times we, we, we throw the word around, but do we really think about who we're talking about? And he loves me. He really does. Despite my foibles, despite the flaws in my personality, despite uh, my, my sins, despite all the warts and all the problems that are Luke Guthrie, God loves me. And Paul would say in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? He goes in there and a litany of things. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to finish with that tonight. Let me turn over to Romans 8, and the lesson will be yours. But in all things, verse 37, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who did what? Who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You believe that? I hope you do. I hope you live it every day. And it's 10 after, so I think that's time for me to stop. Thank you for being here tonight.